Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 139. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, coming to you live on tape from the Los Angeles International Airport. That's why the audio sounds so funky. I promise the rest of the audio in the episode will not sound like this. It was recorded previously, but I'm on my way to Australia, and because of time zone changes, well, I needed to record this audio right now. On this episode, you will hear a really fantastic interview with journalist Kate Lever. Uh, my name is Kate Lever. I'm a journalist and author living in London. So uh, what kind of stuff do you usually write about? I usually write about anything that is to do with women, pop culture, or mental health. That's just become kind of my specialty triage, if you will. Kate is here to talk about her new book, The Friendship Cure, in which she explores the crippling, damaging, life-threatening impact of loneliness and the severe impacts of living a life disconnected from a support network of close friendships. In the interview, we talk about loneliness, how to make friends, the difference between male and female friendships, platonic friendships, friends with benefits, and lots, lots more. I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you will too. And also, it sounds a lot better than this audio, I promise. This episode will be a straight-up interview with just a conversation between me and Kate with some ads about a third the way through recorded right here in the Los Angeles International Airport. So let's get to it. Kate Lever and the Friendship Cure. And what got you interested in deep diving into the topic of friendship? Actually, it started one day in 2015 when I was in Hyde Park in London, and I read an article uh, that basically argued that as we get older and get married and have kids, we lose that kind of urgency and love for our friends, and that that contributes to our loneliness epidemic that we're going through at the moment. Mm -hmm. And essentially, that article frightened me into a year-long binge of research, and I wrote an 83,000-word reply to that article. Um, so it really just sort of was a very personal thing. And the first time I felt like I didn't have enough room to discover enough about a topic in just a feature article, I mm -hmm. felt like there was a book in it. Well, this is really, um, this is a topic I think that is on, is 
is top of mind for a lot of people, and they may not realize it's top of mind for them because it's so hard to compare what you're experiencing in the modern world to what people experienced in previous generations. Even if we have like, you know, television or movies or books to compare ourselves, you know, loneliness is such a private thing oftentimes that it's uh, hard to, I think it's hard to portray uh, effectively in a lot of different media. The and our modern loneliness feels different. It feels like it has to be unique to our era and our technological, uh, you know, place and time. So if we can just start there, because I think this leads to what you're really writing about. Um, is it different? Is is this a different? Is this just a another way to look at the same old thing, or or have things changed for us when it comes to loneliness? I think that's such a lovely question. Um, it is difficult to tell, of course, because we have the only the kind of hindsight um, that that our sort of parents and grandparents give us. And beyond that, we have to rely on history um, to try and get into it. And I think for many, many years, loneliness has some, been something that we haven't been candid or honest about. It's been such a very private thing. I think um, while I'm very reticent to blame social media for loneliness, um, and in fact, I often jump in and defend the internet, um, definitely as a millennial, it's, it's my role in society to do that. Um, but I think the sort of illusion of intimacy that we have through social media is making this a unique period in history um, in with regards to loneliness. Because I think we have a spike in loneliness. Uh, I think there's plenty of scientific scientific evidence to say that it's affecting us both physically and mentally more than it ever has. And and of course, there's the argument that, that you know we haven't had that level of research before. But nonetheless, I think the way we've structured modern society, the way we use technology when we're using it in an unhealthy way, and the way we've kind of tricked ourselves into thinking we have these enormous circles of friends when actually we only need a solid, you know, maybe five really good ones, has thrust us into an era of acute loneliness that I would say is probably unprecedented. Well, that's, that's fa- this is a fascinating thing, the idea that, that we really need to, to curate and take care of this core group of people, three, five, seven, whatever you're fortunate enough to have. Um because I know a lot of our time is spent curating this giant audience that we assume is liking our things. And maybe they are, depending on how, uh, how much social cachet you have. But um, I know that I've, over the last few years, I've gone through a number of you know, traumatic life events. And the, the only thing that pulled me out of it was having a, a core group of friends who I eventually reached out to. And then they came and they delivered times a million everything i needed and it brought us all closer together and it brought it made their friendships tighter and better even without me around mm. um and made them more likely to reach out to each other um is this something that you're that you're is this when you talk about the friendship cure is this what you're talking about is that or is this an aspect of it that is so beautifully and brilliantly exactly what I'm talking about. And I have to say I'm particularly pleased to hear it coming from a man because I think men tend to be generally sort of more reluctant to ask help when they ask for help when they need it and to gather their friends around them when they need it. Um, I think I, I say in the book I kind of have, especially in the final chapter, a real call to arms for us to revive our urgency and respect um, for friendship. And I think it's... And I say that it's the only thing that will save us from ourselves. And I stand by that because I think 
um, exactly what you've spoken about there, this kind of potentially life-saving quality of friendship is precisely why we cannot afford as a species um, to deprioritize it or to let it kind of drift as we get distracted with different parts of our life, mm. whether that's, you know, a romantic love relationship, the children we make if we decide to do that, the careers we build for ourselves, or just a sort of all-consuming sense of, I don't know, navel-gazing. Um, I think Aristotle, you know, all those centuries ago said that friendship was something, that friendship was made out of going through hardship together. Now, he actually said you had to go through, go to battle together, and he may have been talking about actual battle, mm. but I like to think of it more figuratively, and, and I think going through something difficult like you did with your friends by your side is the most powerfully bonding thing that you can do, um, and I think you've proved to yourself, and I think anyone who's been through something traumatic and then had the support of their friends have proven to themselves just how vital and yeah, potentially life-saving. I'll say that phrase again, life-saving um, friendship can be. So that's precisely why I wrote the book and precisely why I'm so sort of adamantly speaking about the subject and trying to get people to realize just how important friendship is. Mm. Yes, I, I, I um, you know, some over the course of the last few years, I've had friends tell me stories from their lives that they haven't told anyone or they've kept inside them for 20 years. And um I have relationships that are so much stronger with many of my male friends, especially uh, who will randomly um, no prompt text me from time to time and say things like, uh, thank you about you, love you, man, that kind of stuff. Like, that's it. And that, that's, so nice. that sort of stuff was not happening for my entire life, right? Mm. Um, and uh, reading and reading your book, I was thinking like, uh, everyone should have this and it shouldn't take, you know, I, I, it, for me, it did take something big, right? So instead of, uh, I was trying to be stoic and standoffish and it did take a long time to re go over a hump. So, uh, the idea that this should be a fundamental value that we curate friendships in that way is absolutely something that resonated with me. And I, I love the way you wrote about it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm so pleased to hear that. I think, I mean, you know, I have a boyfriend and I love him very much and I, I do say this in front of him, but the, you know, the true loves of my life are the girlfriends that I've, that I've collected into my life, particularly throughout my twenties. And I have a core group of friends who unfortunately don't live geographically very close to me anymore. Um, but whom I talk to most days, um, you know, on my phone, on WhatsApp, and they remind me of the person I am and the person I want to be. And so long as I feel as though I belong in that group of people, then I know I'm on the right track. And that's that's so important and makes me sure of my identity and sure of what I want to do in this world. And I can't think of anything more powerful. Well, uh, I agree. And that's so good. Um, so let, let's, before we talk about, because there's a question I want to ask you, we're going to get to it. I see this all the time, especially on places like Reddit. Uh where if loneliness is, comes up, there will be people who will ask, like, well, how do I make friends or what do I do or, you know, uh, that sort of thing. I'm, we're going to get there. But before we get there, I, wanna, I don't want to leave loneliness until we've kind of looked at it for a second. Because you say something in the book, I think some people may be familiar with this, but it's always shocking if, you, if, if you've never heard it. Um, loneliness is life-threatening. Um, mm. What does that mean? If you could help us understand what that means. Yeah, I mean, I think... 
the, one of the most fascinating parts of my research for this book has been the science of loneliness, because I think we've always known that loneliness is heartbreaking and can be really difficult with regards to our mental health. But until quite recently, we haven't been paying attention to some of the research that suggests or rather proves that it's incredibly dangerous for our physical health. So it's something they, for instance, there's a very famous study from 2007 that happened in Australia, my home country, um, where they gathered together a group of breast cancer sufferers. And essentially, over the course of the study, they, they worked out how strong each person's social network was and how much they could rely on their friends. And over the course of the study, they were 50% more likely to survive if they had a stronger social network. Mm. There are similar studies that prove that friendship can actually extend our life and loneliness can actually cut our lives shorter. Um, all sorts of research you can go into and that I that I cover in the book. Yeah, you mentioned astonishing. You mentioned heart attacks, stroke, diabetes, cholesterol, yeah. uh, dementia, um, dementia, depression, anxiety, insomnia, also any basically any physical or mental ailment you can think of. It is detrimentally affected by loneliness. Loneliness yeah. is more dangerous than smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more closely linked to our mortality than smoking and obesity. And we have, you know, countless campaigns telling us, you know, to fight obesity and to quit smoking. Where are all the campaigns telling us it's desperately important for our health to make friends? Well, I, 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 I you know, so we're primates and we're gregarious and we need social grooming and, you know, there's no solitary primate out there. Obviously, this is going to hurt us to be feel that like fear of, of being alone and and um, truly being, you know, even if you haven't been ostracized, you're still getting the, the emotional responses that you would. And and I I think we have the urge, right? We want to connect to people. We don't want to be alone. I do see this oftentimes on internet forums where people will, if, if it, if it gets to the subject of loneliness or it gets broached in some way, um, I, I can feel that there are people who are online trying to ha get some, uh, you know, semblance of connection, but they want to be, to meet and hang out and be around people and have these kind of friendships that we've been talking about though, with the kind that, um, where you do randomly text people for no reason and just say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Um, as someone who's written this book and has spent so much time with it, um, if that per if a person like that was to ask you for advice, like how do I get, even get started? I moved to a new city. I, I took this nice job and, you know, on paper I'm successful, but I'm very sad and lonely and I would like to connect. What should they be doing? That's such an important question. And since I've written the book, I've spoken to a lot of people in my own life and complete strangers who've asked me quite vulnerably, you know, how do I make friends, particularly as an adult? And I think it's actually easier than we think it is. I think social interaction can be incredibly daunting, but there are a few simple things. The first thing I encourage people to do if they want to make new friends is to do an audit of their existing life, because I think we let a lot of friendship opportunities go by. 
For instance, there was a really alarming study recently in the UK that said something like, and don't quote me on this because I might have got the number a little bit wrong, but something like 73% of us couldn't name someone who lives on our street. Mm. And I think neighbours are, well, for a start, the most convenient type of friend you could make. Um, geographically, logistically, being able to maintain a connection with them is going to be the easiest. Um, I think we don't talk to each other on public transport. We don't, particularly in London, I've noticed, we don't sort of speak to strangers. Um, there isn't a general sort of community sense that perhaps we used to have. We're losing a lot of public spaces like libraries and parks and community centres. But I think we need to do what we can to protect those spaces because historically that's where we've met new people and made new friends. Mm. Um, so I think looking at also deepening the relationships that you already have. I mean, we spend more of our life at work than we do anywhere else. And yet there are so many people we only say hi to in the lift and maybe have a quick conversation about whether we have weekend plans or, you know, how the kids are. And that's about as deep as our interactions get. So my other advice is to look at sort of the people you have around you in your workplace and wonder whether you could actually venture out of hours and invite someone for a drink or a coffee where you actually talk with some depth and intimacy about your personal life. Um, and I know for, for many years we've had this kind of idea that you have to be stoic and have this kind of professional decorum in the workplace, but that's changing. I mean, our work is infiltrating every part of our life, and so long as we're answering emails at any hour of the day, I think we have the right now to make work personal, and I think if we're going to survive the kind of work culture we've got now, we need to have friends in that environment. So I think looking at friends that you could already have that you've missed whether that's on your street or in your workplace, is where to start. And from there, I think you have to be proactive and strategic and smart about it. And I think it's as simple as joining a book club, joining a netball team, going to a yoga class regularly so you see the same people, mm. just literally putting yourself in the proximity of other human beings and giving yourself the best chance to meet new people. Yeah. And, then of course, and then, of course, it's being brave, and that is you know, suggesting further social interaction with a human being that you actually like whether that's at your boyfriend's sister's house party or someone you meet on Twitter. Um, speaking of which, the other thing, particularly, you know, you said someone moving to a new city. I moved to a new city a few years ago, and my single most effective way of making new friends was checking people out on Twitter, um, <laughs> having a bit of banter, and then sort of sliding into their DMs to ask if they wanted to go for a coffee. And that's resulted in some genuinely long-lasting and delightful friendships. So that's my other advice is to use technology intelligently. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second because this is something um, – it's very easy to become a naysayer. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of things, uh, there, there's a whole lot of, of as, many aspects of social media that feel like soul poison. Um, <laughs> yes. but you advocate throughout the book that, um, you know, it's just a tool and there are other ways to use it. Uh, what are some better practices when it comes to social media? If you're trying to, um, steer in the direction of the sort of things that you write, you're writing about. Well, I think social media is really interesting because I think it can be extremely noxious, as you say, but I think it can also have this wonderful potential for connecting us. I think particularly if you're an introvert, if you're socially anxious, if you have any mental health issues, if you live with a disability, if you have autism, any of these sorts of things, they're particularly good for vulnerable people, as well as just anyone in the world existing. It can be a portal into new connections, and it can be a way to audition people to be your friend in real life. Mm. 
So I think, I mean, the best advice for using social media in a way that's not detrimental to your mental health is to be really aware of the way you're using it. I think um, studies say there are a lot of studies to do with social media. Obviously, it's a very trendy area of research at the moment. Um, But there's a lot to say that actually our passive use of social media is the most detrimental. So that's when we're just, you know, lying in bed first thing, scrolling through Instagram and looking at the highlight reels of other people and then comparing it to ourselves as we're lying there in our pajamas being our least glamorous selves Mm -hmm. and perhaps not feeling, you know, our greatest. So I think there's a lot of time we waste on social media just scrolling through, reading other people's posts. Um, Whereas there's evidence now that being active on social media um, and being very conscious of what you're putting out into the world, as well as using it to actually engage with people rather than just kind of lazily looking at their lives through your smartphone, that can be really healthy and really helpful in terms of fostering actual connection with people. So I would say, first of all, look at the way you're using social media, because I don't think we, we sort of stop and take stock of our own habits when we're scrolling through. And I think we can be um, you know, really complacent about it and put ourselves in danger of comparing ourselves, you know, really harming our health, our self-esteem and our sense of identity and confidence. So I think if you're aware of that, if you're putting lovely things that are on your own personal brand, if you need to have a personal brand out into the world, and I think if you're using it to actually track down old friends on Facebook or make new friends on Twitter or, you know, comment on, on other people's photos on Instagram, then that's a totally different experience because you are actually connecting people. And it might not be face-to-face, but it's still a valid social interaction. Mm-hmm. So that would be my best advice is to sort of do a little audit of how your behavior affects you on social media and maybe even use one of those apps that um, – that records how much time you spend on social media and perhaps do a little check-in with yourself about what your mood is after you've had a little scroll or a little social media session Mm. and just change the way you use it if it's not making you feel happy. Mm. Yeah, I'm always wary of the technological uh, poo-poo because they – you know, the f- telephone is a piece of technology. Yeah, so is the wireless radio. Yeah, and people – I mean, it's like – of course, you know, you call you call up someone and give and have a meaningful, you know, you call your mom and nobody, you know, the technology disappears. And um, the idea that you uh, blaming the technology for the behavior is often uh, an easy way out. Um, I agree. Clay Shirky said that technology doesn't create behavior, it lowers the barriers to exhibit it. So the, you know, it makes it very easy to do things that we would have done anyway if we could have. Um, yeah. And so when you have total freedom to do things that you used to not, it requires a new kind of um, self-control and it requires a new kind of, um, you know, uh, literacy for the, for your, for life itself. And so I, I've often felt that we've been living through a, an interim period of being handed these tools and with no instruction manual. And uh, we've done a lot of stupid things with them. Um, but we also, yeah. there's a lot of potential to do some really nice things too. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely true. Well, there's something I wanted to ask you here, which is, um, you say there's a big difference between being alone and being lonely. Um, being happy and self-sufficient alone is not the same as feeling alone in a group of people. If you could just expand on those ideas, because I think it's worth noting, I think that's a feeling that sometimes people get and they feel like they're the only person that's ever felt it in the history of humanity. Um, and seeing it written in a book, make, really, it does make you feel better. So if you could just expand on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I think loneliness, I like to call loneliness a really sneaky bastard because Mm -hmm. I I sort of, if I personify it in my mind, it makes more sense of it and it allows me to articulate a little better. And I think one of the cruelest things about loneliness is that it tricks you into thinking you're the only person who's ever felt that way in the history of the world. And of course, that is only isolating you more and making you feel more alone and more unique in this struggle. Whereas realistically, so very many of us have that feeling and really if we could trick loneliness in return and unite in this feeling that we have we could beat it Um, and I think one of the the most important things to understand about loneliness and I do think we are still trying to understand it we're at that stage of the conversation is that it is possible to loan to be lonely in the company of other people You can be lonely at a wedding with 200 guests. You can be lonely at your own birthday party. And you can certainly be lonely in a relationship that should be loving but isn't. And I think, uh, you know, we when we work in the loneliness space, there are certain experts who say that there's a difference between social isolation and loneliness. So to be lonely, it's not a prerequisite for you to actually be physically on your own. Though, of course, there are people in our society who are socially isolated, particularly the elderly and people who live with disabilities, people who are carers for the disabled. Um, There are lots of sort of groups in our society who are socially isolated. And loneliness is, of course, a problem for them as well. But I think the most powerful thing about loneliness as a facet of human nature is that it can exist at any time. It does not discriminate. It comes after you no matter what your income is, no matter what postcode you grew up in, no matter how, how old you are or what your circumstances in life. And I think we're dealing with a very, very powerful force and one that we don't fully understand. Um, and it is, of course, and I'm so pleased that it sort of resonated with you for me to say things like this in the book, um, because I think the more we can say out loud what loneliness feels like, the less alone we tend to feel. Mm. Because mm. as you said, and as I completely agree, loneliness does con you into thinking you're the only one who feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it's incredibly important to be speaking about this sort of thing. The best, my favorite description of, of what loneliness feels like comes from a woman called Amy. Um, and she said, I don't know if you've ever been to a silent disco, but a silent disco is basically, it's like a normal disco, except there's no music playing in the room. The music comes through headphones that each person is is wearing. So you can have this weird experience where you take off the headphones and just watch people dancing in silence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Amy said to me that loneliness feels to her as though she's the only one in the room who can't hear the music. Mm -hmm. So she's in a crowded room, but she feels like there's something wrong and she's the only person who can't dance and be in the moment and hear what everyone else is hearing. Mm -hmm. And imagine if you take that literally, what an alienating experience that would be. If you sort of expand that out more figuratively, that's what loneliness feels like. Yeah, absolutely. And and, um, I feel like in it's... It is a it's a deficit of having one on one time and, and uh, oftentimes right and then mm-hmm. um, so like it's really hard to go from I need some one on one time to oh I'm in a group of twenty people and um, you know you have to be performative in that group if you want to hang out you have to be having a good time <laughs> yeah. uh, and and you don't want to be the one who's like hey I'm kind of going through something because uh, then you're not having a good time. And, mm. uh, and now you're going to make everyone else not have a 
good time. And so then it starts this feedback loop and you just kind of want to get away and go, look, I just don't need to be here. Um, and there's, oddly enough, when it's, when it is time for you to have this one-on-one time with someone who you know you can be empathetic to and they can, they can reciprocate that, that, that empathy, um, I often think, you know, you're, you're walking around your apartment or your house and you're thinking how you would like to reach out to someone, maybe someone in particular. And um, I often think that in those times, and you think to yourself, well, they're probably busy or, well, maybe I shouldn't do that right now. Or, well, maybe I don't want to put this on them. I think sometimes off, that they're often on the other side of that. And they're, they're, I like to think that sometimes they're thinking the same thing. And there's mm-hmm. two, two people who are like, they're, they would like to reach out to each other and they're convinced that their internal dialogue is accurate. Um, they've, they're reasoning alone and, and tricking themselves into thinking, into having some sort of certainty about something. And if they would just talk to the other person or just reach out, they'd be a shock to realize the other person would like to commiserate. Um, I feel like that, and I say that only because I've experienced it. And, um, and the other person is always extremely happy you reached out. And then, um, and you move things forward and you're less likely to do it in the future. It's, uh, um, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is uh, to just piggyback off of what you're saying is, um, make the phone call or do, or do the text, <laughs> you know, like yeah. just do it, just give it a shot. Uh, the only thing that's going to happen if it doesn't work out is you will still spend that night, uh, you know, marathoning Netflix by yourself. That's not going to, nothing's going to change that. That's your, your worst case <laughs> scenario will still uh, happen. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. And that's really, apart from perhaps like a whole shift in the way society approaches friendship, that's really what I wanted to achieve in writing the book is that perhaps someone would pick up the phone and call or text someone and feel as though, you know, they don't have to listen to that internal monologue that tells them um, that they shouldn't do it or that someone's going to think they're too keen or that they don't want to hear from them or that they don't need to because they've got more friends than they need. Um, Whereas in reality, you know, most people are going to be completely delighted to be contacted, to have a gesture of friendship offered to them. Um, And I think so important, you know, it's my greatest hope that people will put down my my book and pick up the phone and try and connect with someone. I think equally uh, we need to get better at alone time. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. in my own experience, whenever I spend time on my own, in my own company, um, I'm sort of scrolling through the internet, sort of half connecting with people in a virtual sense um, or binging something on Netflix, which I think is a very noble and wonderful activity, um, but perhaps not the best um, way of actually spending time on your own and sitting with yourself and your thoughts and reflecting on who you are and what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. I think we have a tendency to like, rely on distraction even when we're in our own company so i think we need to get better at connection but i also think we need to get better at disconnection if that makes any sense absolutely there's a um i have no problem playing video games and watching netflix or uh cruising the internet i have no problem with any of it uh except when it's being used for a nefarious purpose which is to avoid that bad feeling you're having or to avoid um working through a thing and I don't expect people to work through a thing in one afternoon. Uh, you were, you know, you do it in bursts and then you can go watch Netflix. It's fine. Um, but completely avoiding it, uh, is just pushing it down the line. You're going to, it's going to get to you eventually. Um, and the, that we have better, I understand that we live in an era where we're more likely to be alone than ever. Um, 
and, and so you are alone with your thoughts more than ever. And that means you, that, that does require a kind of, um, a skill set, a, a, medit- a meditative skill set that is unique to our era, I believe, unless you've, um, you know, you lived, unless you've or you know Thoreau or something, right? So the the, the, the you know, unless you unless you've had some intense hermitage and you went on like a expedition to the Arctic, I think, um, or you know you crossed the ocean and you you had a private cabin. I uh, I'm so I don't know if you have any advice for how to be better at being alone. Um, you know, if we're saying like don't don't rush to the phone and rush to the TV to get to avoid some uh, rumination. Is, do you have any advice for like a, a person who is complete novice at this, how to be just what's some like f- some um, best practices to get started at being better at, uh, at working through things on your own without having to distract yourself? Well, I think for a start, it's about being self-aware. Um, so few of us are truly self-aware and I, I think it probably requires quite a bit of therapy to get to that stage. But I think for an, for a beginner in terms of wanting to spend time on your own, I think looking at your habits and thinking, why am I watching hours and hours of Sex in the City on Netflix? Or why am I playing this video game for hours and hours? What am I trying to avoid? Um, is a, That's a really good question to start with. From there, I think it's really important to experiment with some different activities in your own company. So I've, I'm too fidgety to do meditation or mindfulness. That just kind of makes me a little bit claustrophobic and anxious, and I find it too confronting. But I have found that going for a long walk with my dog or even, you know, I went, I swam laps today and had to be in my own head with my own thoughts. Um, those sorts of activities are really helpful. Or, you know, sometimes I have a bubble bath and listen to Harry Styles in my bathroom. Um, <laughs> those things work for me. I think if you're trying to spend more time in your own company, trying out some things that involve silence, that involve movement, that involve genuine contemplation rather than a constant stream of distraction is going to be a really good place to start. I mean, I'm, you know, my language of love is television. Mm. I watch hours and hours of it. And certainly if I'm depressed or anxious or if there's something on my mind, I I could sit there for hours and hours and I, I should probably win some kind of award for my um for the for the endurance that I have for television but I also know that I'm distracting myself and that sometimes I need to go silently without listening to a podcast and just walk in nature until I've confronted some of my own feelings um so I would suggest that people do that and you know I don't know it might be meditation it might be walking it might be swimming it might be dancing it doesn't have to always be be exercise maybe it's a sort of mindfulness where you can just sit in your own company and have a think Mm -hmm. you don't have to be extreme about it you don't have to you know go on an expedition to the arctic on your own and you know write a memoir about it you can just introduce some small pockets of time into your life where you are actually in your own company and you know put your phone on airplane mode so that you can't be interrupted or put it in another room just banish it from wherever you are leave it at home if you go out of the house Find a way to have a bit of actual, genuine me time, though I hate that phrase. Um, <laughs> I agree with I mean, you on this. Like, the phone's got to go. I mean, it's got to go. Yeah. Um, whatever it is, whatever you pick, even if you just, I mean, for me, uh, I had a great moment. I, I had a great, something that really worked for me was uh, dr- driving across country and driving back again. Um, and, uh. and just, uh, I had a couple audiobooks, but oftentimes, 
I would just be silent in the car. Um, but the phone had to be off. Um, and it's huge. It's huge. Even if, even if, if you're reading or, um, um, you know, having, a a meal or anything, this, this period of time that you're talking about, the phone's got to go. Uh, I agree. I agree. I mean, it can be anything. My sister recently discovered that she likes to carve spoons. Mm. I mean, that's not something that you would sort of naturally go to as a young woman as a hobby, but that works for her. You know, just try, find some kind of activity. And while I'm on the topic of a hobby, I don't mean, you know, a new revenue stream or a side hustle or a second job. I mean, genuinely find something that you're terrible at to begin with, but <laughs> something that you really enjoy. <laughs> That's good. That's really good advice. Uh, I like that. Uh, find something you're terrible at, uh, but that you enjoy. <laughs> that is good. It's- liberating <laughs> and do not try to make money at it stop it stop it yeah, exactly. you're just you're just getting back on the wheel stop <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and i'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor i was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor and i was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program i have recommended BetterHelp to people i know people right now who i've recently onboarded i had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives, to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well 
even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'd like to move on to the. Um to the discussion of, uh, you know, the differences between friendships between women and friendships between men. Um, uh, and so we don't have to do any of the tap dancing. Uh, I acknowledge that this is uh, era-specific and culture-specific and um, all sorts of things play into it. But regardless of those things, uh, living here now in our culture as it is, uh, there are definitely differences between the way men and women interact in these these core friendship groups that we're talking about, the, that um, the people you can depend on and you can talk to and you can have share empathy with. So um, through your research and through your interviews, uh, let's start with, with uh, female friendships. Um, tell me some things that are, that came through in your writing that you found seem to be universal, at least among the, the groups that you spoke with, uh, and unique and interesting and strange and funny and bizarre. Uh, just jump into it. Okay. So I have, I, I could start a popularity, no, sorry. I could start a fan club for female friendship. <laughs> I I honestly just have the most respect for something beautiful that happens when two friends, two women, become close. I spoke to a lot of women for the book, 
both people I know in my personal life, my dearest friends in the world, as well as complete strangers that I met on the internet or through sort of call-outs for different content. Um, And the more women I spoke to about their friendships, the more I started to notice patterns and trends. And I think compared to men, women are more sort of socially conditioned to be communicators. So we're more likely to sit across from one another drinking coffee or drinking rosé and trying to put the world to rights. And we sort of, we understand, we have a language, we have an ease with intimacy and we are able as women to make ourselves more vulnerable than I think we give permission to to men to be. So I think one of the most beautiful things about female friendship is the way it sort of reminds us of who we are um, because the solidarity of the sisterhood is built on shared, shared experience. And unfortunately, in this time, as in many times before it, um, that shared experience is one of misogyny, one of sexism, one of fear, one of anger. Mm-hmm. I think, for instance, the movement that we call the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement, um, this whole conversation sort of post-Weinstein about sexual harassment um, and about sexual assault, I think that has been a gesture of the sisterhood. I think that is a movement of anger and fear and love that is based primarily on female friendship because we're talking to one another and that's very special skill that women are particularly good at. We're listening to one another. And that again and again is what I kept coming up against in my research. I kept finding women who listen to each other and talk to each other in the most beautiful and powerful way. And I think you can look at that in a microcosm in our own lives, you know, the way I use my WhatsApp group with my best girlfriends to talk about, you know, how to get a promotion at work, but also um, how to tell someone that, to tell a man that they've touched us in an inappropriate way or how to feel safe when we're walking home in a public, you know, public street. Um, how to ne- Basically, we use female friendship and the connection we have there as a way to negotiate the, the often inconvenient and frightening experience of being female. So I think it's sort of a survival mechanism. Um, and I think for, very, for a very long time, female friendship has been portrayed as being catty or bitchy or petty. And there are a lot of movies, a lot of books that really rely on this kind of stereotype of women women being competitive and being cruel to one another. And the more research I've done, and certainly in my own personal experience, that is just not as common as we think it is. Mm-hmm. More, more, you know, more often than not, female friendship is an incredibly calm, resilient, strong, and powerful thing, and it's a real force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. I think it's allowing a lot of women to get through lives where they may not otherwise get through. Um, you know, my girlfriends are my lifeline, and I think that a lot of people would say the same about theirs. And, and you write in the book that um, there's something in the different. There's something unique in here that um, men respond to anxiety with uh, fear, uh, uh, fight or flight, and uh, fear, mm-hmm. flight, fear, fight or flight, uh, while women tend to respond with tend and befriend. Could you uh, expand on that for us? Yeah. So there's this lovely study by a scientist called Laura Casino Klein and her associates. It was sort of a big research team on this. And essentially, they looked at this idea we have of fight or flight as a survival instinct. And they came to the conclusion that a lot of studies that we've done were mainly done on men. I think there was 64% male studies. So we don't actually know that that is necessarily what women do. We know that men have a fight or flight tendency. And that is sort of something we use colloquially, but is originally just the idea that if you're presented with an obstacle 
or a sense of danger. And originally that might have been, you know, a tiger or a tribe that you don't know in terms of sort of the first human beings, um, but now can apply to any kind of obstacle or challenge. But basically when you're presented with danger, you either run away from it or you fight and confront that danger. And those are our two instincts. Whereas this research team sort of looked at the way women might react to danger and decided that it might be very different. So they have called it tend and befriend. So in the face of danger, they found and they suggest that women either tend to the babies, the children that they have, if they've made that decision, the families that they've brought up, or they make friends. So they go to other women as a survival technique. Um, and certainly in earlier times in humanity, having female friends and having the protection of a group and the safety in numbers um, was literally, um, you know, a matter of life or death. Mm. And I would say the same is true now. Um, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, when we talk about fight or flight, we often use the example of a tiger or a bear confronting a man, whereas actually the great, you know, statistically the greatest danger to any woman is usually a man mm-hmm. and usually then the man that she loves or is in a relationship with. So it's this idea that we can protect ourselves with female solidarity and that that is actually a primal instinct not just kind of a socially conditioned role that we might fill mm-hmm. so that's been a really fascinating study and i spoke to the lead researcher on that and um she <laughs> she did the study in 2000 actually and i wanted to know sort of what had changed since then and basically she had lived out her own research because she was you know a woman in a very male dominated Um, department at the university, the evolutionary psychology department. Um, So she sort of had to deal with being um, an object of sexism. She was also left by her husband while she was ill and she had a few children under the age of five and had to raise them by herself. And she found that her instinct in those times of trauma and fear and challenge was to tend to her family and then rely on her friends. So she kind of, you know, did the science first and then lived it out in her own life, Hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Uh, There is something happening in our culture when it comes to male friendship as well, which is, as you talk about a lot in the book, not only is it, uh, you know, the, you talk about Brad Pitt and uh, Clooney and Damon, yeah. Damon and Affleck and Wilson and Stiller and my favorite, Stuart and McKellen. Um, uh, yeah. um, and also, you know, J.D. and Turk, as far as fiction, you know, J- uh, um, that was a big difference there. They've definitely, the, the J.D. and Turk relationship on television uh, was a completely, di- for at least uh, I, there may have been other examples, but I feel like it was the one that was like, oh, wow, that's a something has changed about what how male friendship is represented in media that uh yeah. on, their their friendship on scrubs was like nothing i'd ever seen before um yeah, i've spoken to so many men who feel exactly the same way they've just never seen that kind of love and intimacy between two men in a kind of like unapologetic shamelessly close way um and with such humor and gentleness as well yeah and um and they never had, you know. There was, uh, they had the foil of um, of the of the of the doctor from the previous generation, you know, who who, who rolled his eyes at them and, and called them names, um, which helped, I think, uh, get that helped uh, allow that to happen. With you know, there were, it, by giving by giving a fictional character by giving them a fictional foil, it, it helped reduce like some counter arguing in the audience. Um, yeah. 
But there, they did talk. There is something you talk about a lot in the book, and that that, that speaks to is that then you you write in the book you call it um, this intimacy deficiency, a crisis of connection. Um, that even when men have friends, they don't have this thing. They don't have this next level experience. Uh, they don't have a JD and Turk relationship with anybody. Um, mm. And women tend to be able to have that relationship more easily and men tend to stop themselves or they stop each other. Sometimes it's because it's some weird thing about homophobia. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's um, it's it's the expectation that you have to remain a certain kind of stoic or you're not going to be accepted by other people or by women. Mm. And. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, a lot of men don't go the next step because they don't want to be looked at as less masculine by women. Um, but you tell the story about the, I think it was a professor who was showing, or it may have been a teacher who was showing a classroom some um, some material, and there was a child who was a boy who was sharing himself, uh, sharing his uh, his emotions, and the class laughed. Um yeah. And somebody said that they wish they didn't have to be so emotionless. Just jump in there and talk to, talk to us about that for a bit. Yeah, so I spoke to an academic, um, a female academic in the States, and I'm so sorry, but I cannot remember her name off the top of my head right now. Um, but she had spent 30 years basically talking to young boys about friendship, about what they wanted for friendship, what they were losing once they got older, and what they were getting from friendship. And she spoke to her classroom. She spoke at a sort of underprivileged uh, high school to sort of, I think, maybe 13, 14-year-olds. And she read to them a passage that was written by a young boy about his best friend. He was a bit younger than them, but he was talking about how he loved his best friend and how much he meant to them. And basically, they all laughed because they thought this kid sounded gay. And one of the kids put up their hand and said, you know, is this kid gay? And the teacher had to explain, you know, no, I do not know his sexuality, but it's not relevant right now but let's have a little look at your reaction and wonder why we think intimacy between two boys should automatically you know t uh, equal homosexuality when actually it could just be a completely lovely um intimate friendship in a, in a very platonic sense um so it's just I think really indicative of the kind of discomfort that a lot of young boys and then young men and then older men tend to have inbuilt into their egos um, where they feel uncomfortable about being close with another man. Um, some of the men I spoke to and certainly some of the researchers I spoke to um, spoke about how, how many men they'd spoken to um, who were frightened of coming on too strong when making friends with another man and frightened that they would think that they were gay. Mm -hmm. Um so there is certainly this kind of internalized homophobia about their own intimacy with other men. And the researcher, I, the female researcher um, I spoke to who'd spent three decades studying exactly this has declared that we have a, um, a, a deficiency in intimacy for young men and that as children, boys crave the kind of intimacy, the same kind of intimacy that women, that the girls do, that as children, we're exactly the same. We want to be best friends with someone. We want to have that closeness in the playground and then for sleepovers and, you know, playing at one another's houses. We want to have that camaraderie that is so close and so idiosyncratic of children and childish behavior. But then when we get to those teenage years and adolescence kicks in, we start to socially condition young boys to be stoic and to be tough and to uphold this idea of masculinity that says they can't have that anymore. So they sort of 
start to believe that they have to behave in a certain way and that way is to be distant, is to be cold, is to be strong above all else and they kind of lose the ability to be vulnerable with ease. Whereas women are taught to be communicators, we're taught it's okay to be close to other women, we're taught it's okay to love our families, we're taught it's okay to be vulnerable in other mm. in front mm. of other human beings. So there suddenly becomes this great friendship gender gap, if you will, where as, we be, as we're becoming adults and working out who we want to be in the world, um, men suddenly sort of lose the ability to connect with one another. And if that is replaced by fear of getting too close to other men, where women just continue to get better and more resilient and better at sort of uh, becoming close with one another. Yeah, and of course, yeah. I'm making huge sweeping generalizations about gender to make a point, but you kind of have to in this kind of conversation. Oh yeah, to we're, we're talking about it. we're talking about the differences, not the, not the similarities. So yeah, um, <laughs> uh. That's where you find, you know, that's where you figure things out is that the, the even if these things are only 20% differences, it's still, you know, magnified over the course of a, of a civilization uh, and, lot, and millions of people, it can be humongous. It causes, uh, and then you add cultural uh, um, impacts and feedback loops. And yeah, it's important to talk about. So yeah, but yeah, good on you there to definitely uh, acknowledge that. I, um, is this similar to what you're saying in the book? Do you say men, men tend to... St- Men friendship, male friendships tend to be shoulder to shoulder. Women's friendships tend to be face to face. Yeah, that to me um, was one of the clearest ways of putting it. I think men tend to be shoulder to shoulder against the world. They tend to walk alongside, figuratively, alongside one another. They tend to do activities together to bond. They tend to have external things that allow them to get together. Whereas women tend to sit face to face, both literally and figuratively, um, you know, at a table, they're more likely to sit opposite one another and chat for hours. Mm. They're more sort of, they confront one another and um, tend to be more intimate in the way they speak. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely the biggest difference that I have seen both in my personal observations and in talking to people who've spent their academic lives, you know, researching this stuff. Well, this brings, this brings me to something that I want to talk about before we head out, and then we'll head out with some happy stuff about Sardinia. Um, so, so there's a way to kind of like get the best of both worlds here, which is for men to be friends with women. What a crazy idea. And um, the, we have a long history of um, Western literature and um, uh, movies and stuff like that that say like that might not actually be possible. We even have like a very famous – uh, movie that straight up makes that its its central thesis that that's not a yeah. possible thing. Yeah. Um. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. And there is this one thing I want to get to. I'll bring it back up if you if we forget. I love. I think my favorite line in your book is "Our flaws belong somewhere." Um. The no, I, I really like the idea that uh, two people can't be partners, but that they can be great friends. Because there's just something about their flaws that they can't get over, or, or you know, there's just something that that, that, uh, that you know their their prickly bits just don't match up. Um, yeah. But they're but you know your flaws belong somewhere, and I love that line. Um, so if you could just uh, jump into platonic friendships and what you've learned about them. Yeah. So um, I did a lot of research uh, to try and answer the question, the eternal question that we don't seem to have answered comprehensively enough, um, can men and women be friends? 
My stepmother, who I adore but disagree with on this one point, is absolutely adamant that men and women cannot be friends. She thinks one or the other of them will be sexually attracted to the other or romantically obsessed with the other, and that completely destroys whatever platonic platonic relationship you might have had. Um, A lot of people agree with my stepmother. Mm. A lot of people of a particular generation, a lot of people, uh, well, you know, we've even had, I think, in the States, certain politicians say they can't be trusted to be in the company of a woman one-on-one without supervision. So there's a lot of kind of uh, talk about how men and women can't possibly get on on a friendship level. Um, so both psych, you know, psychological science, my own experience, and um, increasingly pop culture are now starting to tell us that that's not entirely true. I mean, if you look at evolutionary science, there's no evolutionary need for women and men to be friends. Um, so I like to think of people who are friends with the opposite sex as these beautiful renegades who just do it for the fun of it. Oh, yes. Um, you have this beautiful line, platonic friendship. I have this quoted. I've, I love it. Platonic friendship is an act of rebellion between two beautiful people who don't need an evolutionary reason to hang out. <laughs> I, I love it. The idea that it's like, uh, it's punk, you know, it's, uh, it it's saying, it it's saying I'm not driven by my, by my programming in any way. I'll do whatever I want. Let's be friends. Yeah, exactly. And I, I look, I think it's really interesting because one of the, the biggest arguments against, Uh, male-female friendship is sexual attraction. Mm. Um, A lot of people say that if you fancy the other person, it's not possible to to be friends with them. Um, But one of my favorite studies that I discovered in my research was this one from America um, where basically the researchers were shocked by their own findings. They spoke to a number of different uh, male-female best friends Um, who had slept together in college. Researchers love to speak to college students Mm -hmm. because they're at this great, vulnerable kind of stage of their lives where their sex lives are just developing, they're working out who they are as adults, they're kind of just this great research pool. Oh, yeah, and and they're right there. Yeah, and, well, exactly, (laughs) they're on the university campus, so it's easy to get to. Exactly. So they spoke to a lot of college people who'd slept with someone and then stayed friends, and um, or, or who hadn't. But basically the conclusion, which they found shocking, was that for a lot of people they spoke to, the sex actually improved the friendship after. Yeah, 70, um, you say 71% in the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, which I think is so funny because it goes against this whole overarching narrative we have where people say, you know, I don't want to sleep with you because I don't want to ruin our friendship, and we think that we can't possibly hold two things in mind or in our hearts at once, which is friendship and sexual attraction. I mean, I've been attracted to plenty of my friends and remain friends with them. You know, I've kissed a couple of my very close male friends, and we've managed to have the kind of emotional maturity to move on with it mm-hmm. and still keep each other in our lives. Um, you know, even in my own relationship now, my boyfriend has slept with his closest female friend, and I don't feel threatened by it. Um, I think it's, we have to sort of give each other permission, particularly in a romantic scenario, to be friends with the opposite sex mm-hmm. because, and this is the most important part of this conversation, it can be a really beautiful, important thing. I mean, I've spoken plenty about how important I think female friendship is for women. I think male friendship is incredibly important for men. Um, but I think getting something from the other gender can be so enlightening and interesting. I mean, I, I realized I had to suffer for my art And um, after I'd done research on strangers, I decided to interview the one 
boy in my life and I say boy because he's been my friend since I was about 12 or 13 so I feel like he's eternally a boy um but we kissed when we were teenagers and I was aware of him having feelings for me throughout our teenage years um and I basically interviewed him over Skype because he lives back in Australia uh, about why we never got into a romantic relationship and why that's not a failure, but rather why we chose our friendship over any prospect we might have had as lovers or, you know, the loves of each other's lives. And what we do is basically encourage male or female attributes in each other so I give him a safe space for being open and vulnerable and you know I invite him out to brunch and we gossip and talk about our feelings which he may not do with his male friends or in fact I know for a fact he does not do as as a um, regularly uh, with his male friends Mm -hmm. whereas he encourages me to be a bit more brash to be a bit more traditionally male or you know what we consider traditionally male attributes he he makes me sort of unashamed of my ambition he makes me talk about sex more openly he makes me kind of increase my confidence in a way that perhaps a white male would so we sort of offer each other little glimpses into what it's like to be someone of the opposite sex and that has been really constructive and interesting to me over a long period of time so I think I'm you know I'm not suggesting uh, that having one friend of the opposite sex in any way kind of gives you authority to speak on what that experience might be like. But it certainly kind of broadens our knowledge of what it's like. It certainly gives us little insights into what it might be to be a man or a woman. Um, And I think there are so many different variables because, of course, we haven't even spoken about sexuality because I think, you know, men and women, when they have, you know, sexual orientations that don't match up, can also have beautiful friendships and be really interesting. And there's, you know, one of my best friends in the whole world is a gay man and I think we became friends so easily and so quickly and so deeply because there was no sexual possibility between us at all so for me as a woman that was completely non-threatening and safe and for him it was non-threatening and safe for him to express his more feminine sensibilities Mm. so I think there can be so many different variables once you take sexuality into account as well but it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I um, I like this phrasing you use in the book where you say that um, it, people say, um, you know, we're just friends. And it's like the phrase, you talk about how, in your opinion, and I like this a lot, it, it's the other, it's really the other way around. Uh, saying, you know, we're we're friends, we're not just lovers, right? Uh, in, in that yeah. area, we're friends, we're not just mates. In that, um, you know, if the... If you're going to do a trade-off, you know, and you're saying that you're you're choosing one or the other, like these people, these are two people who are able to be friends, uh, and they haven't uh, they haven't made it just about sex or or just about uh, um, you know desire between the two people. They, you know, obviously in a relationship you want to have both, but if it's framed as almost like the friendship is the thing you're trying to avoid, um, yeah. uh, which is odd and. Um, you make a good case that even in, even in situations where two people are friends and they happen to hook up in some way that it doesn't necessarily or often destroy anything. And it kind of, it gets it out of the way. And if they're, they can be friends and just let it pass because it's a different type of, um, emotional connection. It's a different type of, um, uh, of attraction to one another. Mm. Um, and, 
the that people aren't brutish, that they can be complex. And um, I dig it. I don't know. This is the uh, I like that section of the book a lot. Thank you. And and I think I mean I didn't speak to the point you made earlier about where our our flaws belong. Yeah, let's and talk I, about that. That was really nice. Thank you so much. I think um, one of the beautiful things that can happen when you're friends with someone of the opposite sex is that you've actually disregarded them as a romantic possibility. So I have people in my life, or someone I'm thinking of particularly now, who's a male friend, um, I've completely dismissed him as a romantic prospect. It doesn't matter that I'm in a relationship now. I wasn't in a relationship when we met, and I decided that he was not, for me, compatible in a romantic sense. So we did not pursue that type of relationship. And that has given me the freedom to be openly flawed in a way that I wouldn't be necessarily if I was trying to impress someone in a romantic way. So very quickly, I gave myself permission to be kind of the parts of myself that I, that I don't present when I'm trying to impress someone, basically. Um, and I feel that it's the same for him, that he's been able to be sort of as open about his own for, personality flaws as possible because he's not trying to woo me, basically, which mm. means that we've opened up all these different, you know, pockets of honesty in our relationship um, where we can be open about our bad behavior, the mistakes we make, the, the times we've been bad human beings. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who I just think would be the worst boyfriend in the world. And I told him <laughs> that. <laughs> I think he would be abominable. And I know that because he's, you know, I've been, I've been there having brunch with him on the, you know, the day after he's done something terrible to a woman. Um, and I, of course, don't condone his behavior. And I try and talk him around from how he treats intimacy and relationships with, with, with women and particularly sex. But I know that I don't want to put myself in that scenario in a romantic sense, but I fully embrace his flawed, full character because I'm allowed to as a friend. And I think friendship can be this wonderful place where we accept people because we're not trying to fit them into a particular role. We're not trying to make them a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And we don't have any sort of list of prerequisite qualities that we need to tick off in order to be in a relationship with them. A friendship is a much freer, more liberal, kind of more open relationship where you can be really flawed and admit your mistakes and talk about when you've been bad. And I think that can, is kind of revolutionary and wonderful. I totally agree with that. This is the best, this is the, my favorite part of the book. And that, you know, you, you can, you can give a friend so much shit for who they are. Yeah. Uh, and you can, and you can totally acknowledge, like, I would never in a million years want to live with you uh, or, you know, wash your clothes. Uh, but, uh, I do think you're a beautiful human being despite these, uh, irreconcilable flaws. And I like that you, the, the way you phrase it, our flaws belong somewhere and they belong in these friendships. And I think that's really beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. The, uh, and we've seen some of this, this is starting to emerge in some of our, uh, even though I've seen this every once in a while in, um, in pop culture with, uh, you mentioned, um, Parks and Recreation, uh, you know, Sw Ron Swanson, Leslie Nope, uh, Liz Lemon and Jack uh, Donnie and in, in uh, 30 Rock. Um, and in those uh, uh, in the portrayals of those, the one brings out the masculine in the other and one brings out the feminine in the other. And they uh, would be the worst pairing of all time. And uh, <laughs> but they're yeah. really they 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 can they can at times be shoulder to shoulder and at times they can be face to face and they really, really uh, build each other up because of that. It's really nice to see when it's done well. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? I mean, I love both of those television shows and both of those friendships because um, 
they would, as you say, make the most terrible romantic couples. And there's very, I think there's courage from those television writers because I think in both Parks and Recreation and 30 Rock, the writers have been brave enough to write into some friendships that do not have convenient, satisfying romantic endings. I mean, we had 10 years of the show, of the TV show Friends and almost got all six of the <laughs> characters coupled up. Right, you know, we got yeah, Mark and yeah. Rachel and Ross, and apparently rumor has it it was meant to be Phoebe and Joey, except then Paul Rudd came in and was so fantastic they had to write him into the ending. So a TV show about friendship almost ended up with its the, the moral of the whole story being that romantic love supersedes it. Ah, so true. I think it's courageous when we start having these different exciting representations of friendships between men and women, like in those two shows. Because I, apart from the fact that I think Liz and Jack in 30 Rock kissed once, but it was for a particular reason, and accidentally got married on a boat, there's no, <laughs> there's no even clue or hint that there would be romantic tension between them. It's just this ridiculous, flawed, interesting, exciting friendship that exists between two human beings, regardless of their gender. Right. Uh, I could talk about all this forever, but I, I, we have to stop somewhere. I would like to stop in Sardinia. Um, yes. because this is, um, I've I'd seen this before, uh, you, you, and it's in, you write about it so well, and it's just one of those things that's, that you're like, oh, that's, that's the secret up to life. So, um, tell us some interesting facts about Sardinia and what, uh, researchers have discovered when they tried to figure out why it's so different there. Well, um, I don't know if you've been to Sardinia, but it is a beautiful um, place in Italy. But the most fascinating thing about it, apart from pizza and pasta and sunshine and beautiful culture, is that it has more people over the age of 100 than in all of North America. Mm -hmm. So this quite small place in Italy has this very strange overrepresentation of centenarians. Mm -hmm. And not just that, they have less inflammation. They have low blood pressure. And they're really healthy 100-year-olds. <laughs> it's bizarre. It's like this wonderful alternate universe where people have found the secret to long life and good health. But they're eating they're pasta and pizza. and Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, the most famous and delectable and desirable um, specialty of this place in Sardinia is this uh, sort of like ravioli, but a slightly different type of pasta, um, but basically little packages of cheese in suede <laughs> tomato sauce. And this is what all the nonnas make for the rest of their family, and they just gorge themselves on it, which is, you know, one of the beautiful things about Italian culture. So it's, you know, basically researchers looked at this place where these people kept outliving everyone else, and they said, look, it's obviously not diet. It's not a secret to their diet um, because they're sort of living this, you know, carb-rich, fantastic diet that goes <laughs> against all sorts of other sort of wellness myths. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not necessarily – there's nothing unique about the environment. There's no kind of fountain of youth or secret, um, you know, part of the ocean they're bathing in to prolong their lives. Mm -hmm. um, the secret, basically, that Sardinians have discovered is friendship. It's companionship. When researchers went to interview people who lived over the over the age of 100, they were always, without exception, surrounded by their friends and family during the interviews. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, because it's Italy, these interviews took place in the kitchen, around the kitchen table, and there were always 
you know, a cousin or an auntie or a best friend um, hanging about because in this very small town in Sardinia, um, the, the buildings are all really close to one another. Everyone lives with everyone else. Even in their old age, they're living with their friends. They're not in care homes. They're not in retirement villages. They're not in assisted care buildings. They're able to live at home and be mobile and be healthy because they're surrounded by their friends. Mm-hmm. And basically, once scientists eliminate all the other factors in their life that could be contributing to this long life and also level of health, they have to come to the conclusion that the only thing that is setting aside these people is their approach to companionship. Yes. So, I I mean, some things just for the audience to like, these people aren't in utopia. They are assholes to each other. They (laughs) they They are grumpy. There are people that they they're like their uncles and they don't like them around. And there are and they are um, their family spats. Uh, friends go in and out. Of, I mean, th- th- this is not utopia. And, then, and sometimes there are people who smoke and there are people who eat too much. And there are there's still uh, politics and everything else that everybody else has. But what they mm-hmm. but what's different. You know, in this in this world in this place where men live as long as women, people. Re- often live to be uh, older than 100 years old. They have fantastic health. They look great and they're happy. Uh, Is that they do know who their neighbors are. Uh, Mm. They know who all of their neighbors are. And their neighbors move in and through their lives and their friends and family are around them constantly. And uh, every opportunity opportunity they have to have a big meal with everyone they know surrounding them, they do. And they spend their days together and they play games together and they are... They have made a cultural – that their culture has positioned itself with a different set of values that are mm. not about this hardcore, hard-shelled individuality. And um, though they can still have individuality, it's not at the expense of all these other things. And it's, it's this beautiful example of nature and nurture um, where they've culturally chosen a different way to be and their, na- their nature has responded in a really nice way. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. I've always had this fantasy of forcing my friends to sort of co-purchase a big house somewhere in the country <laughs> and live together and just force all their spouses into the, and their children into the same one big rambling house that we all own together. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, I, I keep trying to convince them. I keep trying to bring up the Sardinian example and say, you know, it's not some ridiculous fantasy of mine. It's actually the single greatest thing we could do for our health and longevity. So I'm working on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Something about this excites me in that I know that this is, this is how we lived for a very long time. And then the Industrial Revolution happened and we, we're at the tail end maybe of a big bl- weird blip in human history where we've, we're living very in a very alien way um, you know, a very strangely non-communal way. Um, mm. we often do strange stuff to like yank ourselves back into that if we can do it, whether it's like Burning Man type things or, or, or even, you know, <laughs> or even making communes or whatever people do. Um, but I often find that, uh, when I do get a chance to be with my, my circle of friends or in a big family get together, uh, even when it's terrible, um, it's not somehow yeah 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 and um i mean these and this these people who live in this area i mean they have lower incidences of everything alzheimer's uh heart disease uh lung cancer it's wild Mm. there's obviously a stressor it's obviously a stressor in our lives i I don't know i can't i can't take it it's just something about that i love um that 
uh, you're, it's it's a very it's obviously a very large stressor to be constantly uh, curating this selfness that is not really fun to carry around and to not be able to have these permeable membranes between other people around us where we can say we can share what's happening to us uh, whenever things are a little too much and just kind of get course corrected course corrected enough so that we don't have to have these major course corrections when things always completely fall apart and then you've been saving up all this stuff for so long and you just bleh, all of it out at once being having that those close connections allow you to have these micro corrections as you move forward and it obviously is very good for us Mm, absolutely absolutely i think our gut instinct would probably tell us that but now if we read the right things science is actually telling us that as well so it's kind of incontrovertible that friendship is the most sensible thing we can do for our health mm. and that's why you call it the friendship cure and that's exactly why i <laughs> called the book the friendship cure <laughs> um i know i kept you a little longer than i said it would but it, I, I really enjoyed your book and uh I, I think so i think i was a, when i approached it i was like well it was going to be another pop science book that i was going to be like Meh. but uh but then i was then you, you got me oh thank you i'm so pleased What's the best way for people to reach you if they want to keep up with all your stuff? Um, I'm on Twitter as Kate I Lever. Um, I'm on Instagram as the same. That's probably the best place. Or I'm on katelever.com, which is where you can find all my writing and any other details. Okay. And what do you have coming up next? Uh, well, next, to be honest, I will just continue my career as a freelance journalist and wait for the next book idea to come to me. <laughs> uh, well, good, good luck. And um, I thank you so much for all of this. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Same. That's it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything we discussed in this episode by going to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find transcripts, previous episodes, and more. Previous episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. To support the show, head to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Just $1 a month gets you the show with zero ads, and at higher amounts, you get t-shirts, books, posters, and more. You can follow the show on Twitter, at NotSmartBlog. Follow me, at David McCraney. On Facebook, it's You Are Not So Smart. And on YouTube, it's also You Are Not So Smart. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and all the background music in this episode was I Banjo Apocalypse. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.